0: So the songs and that long passage, so you guys are doing great. Uh, but again, welcome back to Redeemer Church. I'm so thankful to see all of you this morning. I am just excited to, to dive into this passage. As you can tell, we have a lot of ground to cover. Uh, but first, I want us to quickly go back and remember the reason why the Gospel of Mark was written in the first place. If you remember... Mark wrote this gospel to Christians who are suffering under this heavy persecution in Rome. And Mark wrote this gospel to answer one specific question, and that is who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? But but who is he really? Not who does the the culture around him say that he is, but not even who the, the culture today says that he is, but we want to know, we want to read this gospel to find out who Jesus actually is, and that was the purpose of this gospel. And the answer to that question was unbelievably important to the Christians who were suffering under this immense persecution in Rome. And the reason why it's so important is because if Jesus was some nobody, if he was just some, some crazy man or some rebel who wanted to overthrow the Roman government and just simply get, got killed for his trouble, well, that meant that these Christians were suffering for no real reason at all. But if Jesus was more than that, if he was more than that, if Jesus was God-made flesh if all of the promises that Jesus made to his followers were true because he is the almighty Yahweh, well, then that meant the suffering that these Christians ex- were experiencing wasn't meaningless. It wasn't meaningless. But you see, it all rested, all of it, on the identity of Christ, on the identity of Jesus. And so Mark, who is writing down the the testimony of the Apostle Peter, is showing that all throughout Jesus' ministry, he is actually revealing more and more of himself to those around him. But sadly, there are some who didn't see Jesus, who didn't see him for who he truly was. They They were blinded to him. In fact, as we will see, many even hated him. And again, as we will see, even the disciples, those who were closest to Him, at times struggled to see and understand who it truly was that they were following, despite their close proximity to Him, and and despite all that they saw Him do. And this passage today reveals something of the utmost importance. It reveals the desperate need that humanity has for what is called divine illumination. Divine illumination. The opening of the eyes of our blind hearts to the truth of Jesus. This is what we're going to explore in today's passage, but first, let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come here and dig into your word. Lord, I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit just opens the eyes of our hearts and helps us see and understand the things that you want to teach us this morning. Guide us in our time together. And I pray this in your Son's name. Amen. All right, now the first ten verses of our passage this morning might seem a little familiar to those who have been here for the last few weeks. It is actually remarkably similar to the account of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in chapter 6. However, there are some key differences that separate the two, that makes us know that, that this isn't just a rehash, a retelling of something that had already happened. You see, here in Mark 8, we are told that Jesus feeds 4,000 and not 5,000. It's pretty, pretty simple, right? Here in Mark 8, the people have been with Jesus for three days, and not just one day. There were seven loaves here in chapter 8 and not five. And we also see that there are less baskets of leftovers. In Mark 6, we see a simple generic word for the, uh, for the word fish that was used. But here in Mark 8, the word uh, that is being used typically refers to sardines. So we know that these were more than likely sardines. So that's gross. But we also know that from the end of chapter 7, that Jesus is now in the region of Decapolis during this feeding, which is a Gentile area. However, in Mark 6, he was still in a Jewish region. So he was in a completely different area than that of Mark 6. And so, though these accounts are similar, they're not the same. There are some critical scholars who will try to convince you that this is just a a scribal mistake, that they made a mistake as they were copying the, the various manuscripts of the scriptures, but that is not true. These are two different accounts of miraculous feedings. However, there are two similarities that I do want to touch on briefly. You see, despite the fact that the disciples have been in this exact scenario before right and despite the fact that they have seen jesus perform countless miracles at this point in chapter 8 they've they've been with jesus for for nigh on 2 years at this point and they've seen him do things such as such as include uh, such as uh, controlling nature itself by calming the wind and the waves and and they've seen him do all these miraculous healings and they but they they clearly they clearly have still not learned Hardly anything. Because just like in the account of Jesus feeding the 5,000, the disciples are concerned. They're worried. They're anxious with how in the world are they going to feed this massive crowd? They're still worrying about it. And of course, this scenario plays out just like the one before, with Jesus telling them to see what's available and then multiplying the scant resources to meet the needs of the people that's the first similarity. Now the second similarity that I want us to to just remember and have in our minds is that Jesus once again has great compassion on the crowd that is before him. If you recall from the last feeding in Mark 6, Jesus sees these crowds of people as sheep, right? He sees them as sheep without a shepherd and this and this breaks their heart. Because he sees people who are aimless, who have no true direction in their life, and they're just simply lost and wandering around. And his compassion for them, first and foremost, manifests itself in meeting, not their physical, not their physical. He didn't begin a a healing spree. He didn't begin meeting their physical needs, but by meeting their spiritual needs. And so in Mark 6, we are told that he begins to immediately teach the crowd. Why? Why does he do this? Because Jesus knows that they need to be fed the bread of life far more than they need physical bread. They need the nourishment that can fill their souls far more than that which can only fill their stomachs. Now, This might actually be a weird notion for us in our modern age where we believe that our modern day problems have grown just too complex to be helped by the Bible. We often think that we need something else. We need need something more. We need modern psychology. We need self-help books. We need all of these different things. We need more than what this ancient book has to offer. That's, That's typically our thought. But in reality, if Scripture is truly the Word of God, God-breathed, and that the Spirit of God truly works through it in our lives as we read it, as we study it, and as we are taught it, then in the utmost and ultimate sense, what we need to heal our broken lives is the Bible. That is, that is our conviction here at Redeemer Church. We don't just pay lip service to Scripture and just believe that it has some good ethical teachings for us. It's not what we believe at all. No, we believe it is the very Word of God and that through it, He equips us for everything, everything that we need to live a godly life. If you have a broken marriage, guess what? You need the Bible if you suffer from anxiety or depression, friends, you need the Bible. If you are struggling with disease, you need the Bible. If you simply feel like there's no hope in your life and, and you have no direction and you don't know what to do, you need the Bible. We are His sheep. And we need, first and foremost, the nourishment that can only come from Christ. Friends, we need His Word. And so here in Mark 8, we see in verse 2 that this crowd has been with Jesus for three days. Three days. You're only here for like an hour. These people were with him for three days. And what do you think Jesus has been doing that entire time? Teaching. Teaching. Teaching these people about the kingdom of God. About repentance of sin and God. In him. And then, of course, he shows his compassion on them once more by providing for their physical needs in a way that mirrors chapter 6. Now, one thing, or another thing, I should say, that I want you to hold on to and remember here is the fact that the disciples, as we've mentioned before, have now seen this incredible miracle of God multiplying bread and fish to meet the needs of the people, not just once, not just once now, but, but twice. They've seen it happen twice. And remember that even in this account, it seems like they still don't quite get it. They don't quite fully get or grasp who Jesus actually is. Now in verses 9 through 10, we are told that after this feeding, Jesus sends the people away, and he and his disciples set sail to the district of Dalmanutha. Now the exact location of Dalmanutha is is not actually really known today, but it was likely somewhere on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, back in Jewish territory. Now let's take a look at verses 11 through 13. It says the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. So at this point, the Pharisees are very much like mosquitoes, right? Jesus didn't have to go out looking for them. They just, they just kind of show up randomly and, and try to make his life as miserable as possible. The, the best connection I could make there was mosquitoes. That's about all I had. And in fact, in, in Matthew's account of this story in chapter 16 of his gospel, so Matthew 16, we learn that it isn't just the Pharisees that have come out to confront Jesus, but the Sadducees decided to come along As well. So you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now it's important to note that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were bitter rivals. They hated one another. The Pharisees, as as most of us know, are the legalists. They were concerned with keeping the law of God and their own law to a perfect T. Not only that, but they they were wanting to separate themselves. That's actually what Pharisees means, the, the separated ones. They wanted to separate themselves away from the pagan Greek culture that had begun to seep its way into Israel. They wanted nothing to do with it, and they also despised Rome. They wanted to break away from its tyrannical rule. Now, the Sadducees, on the other hand, they were what you might call religious liberals. They embraced Greek culture. They made nice with the Romans, and they were skeptics skeptics of anything supernatural. And so these two religious parties had no love for one another whatsoever, and yet one thing united them. What do you think that was? Their hatred for Jesus. Their hatred for Jesus. Remember from from chapter 3, at this point in time, these religious leaders, they were set out to destroy Jesus. They wanted him gone. The, the language that's used there in chapter 3 for destroy means completely wipe out. They wanted him gone from the face of the planet. And so they put their differences aside momentarily and confronted him. Now the word that is translated as test in verse 11 is actually better translated as tempt, to tempt. It is the same word that is used when Jesus is being tempted by Satan in the wilderness in Mark chapter 1. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees are actually joining forces and they're trying to, uh, trying to tempt Jesus into performing a sign from heaven. Now, friends, I want to just kind of make a quick aside here and say it's, it's good to know that it's not always wrong to ask God for signs. It's, it's not always a bad thing. In fact, we should pray that we, that we see God work in miraculous ways that are in accordance to His will. We should pray for those things, and we should pray that, that we have the privilege of seeing those things, that we can see the power of God and these, these wonders that He does, like, like seeing the, the town of St. Albans come to Christ. That's one, that's one wonderful thing that we pray to see, right? And so it's not always bad to ask for signs. Not always, But friends, the asking for a sign should never, never be a challenge to God. Challenging Him to answer the request for a sign if He truly wants your loyalty. God does not owe you signs. He doesn't owe you signs. And often the signs that we ask for, typically, are are self-serving, right? I'm guilty of this. We simply want a sign to know what decision to make about this or that. Or we say, God, if you do X, Y, or Z, then, then I will believe in you. As if, as if we are, we're almost holding our own faith hostage in exchange for what we want. And we forget the primary purpose of all of the signs in Scripture, all the miracles. That's what miracles are. They're, they're signs. They're not, they're not to truly serve the people. Even though that, that is what happens, but that's not its primary purpose. The primary purpose of the signs in Scripture, of all the signs God ever does, is to point to His own glory. That's the main reason. It's for His glorification. And that is something that the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not understand. They weren't there with, with pure motivations truly desiring to see if Jesus was the long-awaited-for Messiah so that they could bend their knee to Him in faith. That's not the reason they wanted the sign from heaven. No. They were there to antagonize Him. They were there to tempt Him to perform tricks that they deemed acceptable, that met their own requirements of Him. But we learn in chapter 3 that these religious leaders... They'd already made up their mind about Jesus. They already made up their minds that all of Jesus' miracles were actually from Satan. They said that that all of these healings that he was doing was because of the power of Beelzebub. Just Satan, demons. And so it didn't matter what he did. They would not believe in him. So essentially, they were there to just find more reasons to continue to not believe in And we know this is the case, because if they wanted to truly see signs that pointed to Jesus' deity and Messiahship, all they had to do was look around them. That's it. Just look around. Look at the lepers that were cleansed, the multitudes that were fed, the countless sick that were healed. All these signs were prophesied by the Old Testament prophets that would accompany the true Savior. They just had to look around. But even though those signs were all around them, they couldn't see them. They could not see them. And more importantly, they couldn't see the truth to which those signs pointed, namely the identity of Jesus. And therein lies the problem. They were spiritually blind. They were spiritually blind. Did you know that that is one of the aspects of man's natural spiritual nature? We talked last week of how we are all, by nature, sinful. And we are born sinful and, and wicked and depraved. It was an uplifting sermon. <laughs> and the scripture tells us that part of our sin nature is being blind to spiritual truths. Psalm 82.5 says that we are a people that walk in darkness. We walk in darkness. And then Jesus himself says in John 3, 18 through 19, and somehow these verses are not quite as popular as John 3, 16. I don't know why, but maybe you can tell me. John 3, 18 through 19. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, meaning Jesus. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Pay attention here. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. And so we are born blind. We walk in darkness. And not only that, but we love that darkness. We are comforted by that darkness. And 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4 tells us that we, in our spiritual blindness, which is helped out by Satan, but in our spiritual blindness cannot see the light of Christ. We can't see the light of Christ. And that's why the Pharisees and the Sadducees can have all of these signs happening around them and not truly see a single one. And that is why they try to tempt him to do a sign that they find acceptable by their own sinful standards. But Jesus sighs deeply in his spirit. He sighs deeply in his spirit. Now the Greek here means a a deep sigh of grief mixed with frustration. He is grieved and he is frustrated. And so he sighs deeply and he refuses to give them a sign. Now, the term generation doesn't just mean the Pharisees and the Sadducees here, but this this is a general term for all of the Jewish people. Jesus is saying that he is refusing to give them the signs that they are demanding. He refuses to play their games because he knows that no matter how many signs he performs, it won't be enough. Because, friends, the problem isn't the lack of signs. It's spiritual blindness. And now this is a good thing for us to remember today. You see, no matter how hard we try, we cannot argue anyone into heaven. We cannot argue anyone into heaven because there is no amount of evidence. There are no amount of signs that we can produce that would ever be enough to convince an unbeliever that Jesus is their only hope in life and death. In fact, Romans 1 says that the unbeliever has all of the evidence that they need. They have all of the evidence right there to know of the existence of God and His eternal attributes, and the signs are all around them in creation, and yet they suppress their knowledge in unrighteousness. Why? Because again, in Jesus' own words, they love the darkness. Christian apologist named William Lane Craig he once debated a prominent atheist back in the early 2000s. And this atheist was a, a big fan of the Enlightenment figure Voltaire because he essentially quoted him verbatim during this debate. William Lane Craig asked him if there was any amount of evidence that would ever change his mind to the reality of the existence of God. And this atheist answered by saying, well, I suppose I suppose, if God came down in the middle of the street where there was abundance of eyewitnesses and revealed himself directly to me, visibly and audibly, you know, perhaps, perhaps maybe, just maybe then I would believe. So essentially, it would take what? A sign from heaven. But then he followed up that statement by saying that even if that were to happen, it wouldn't be good enough. And he would have to distrust all of his senses, he says. He would distrust all of his senses and simply assume that it was all a hallucination. So my friends, that is spiritual blindness. That is a picture of all unbelievers, whether atheist, Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, Mormon. And brothers and sisters, the only hope, the only hope, For those who are blind and walking in darkness is the Holy Spirit working through the proclamation of the gospel. That's it. That is it. The proclamation of the perfect life, the sacrificial death for the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Faith in that is the only cure for spiritual blindness. The only one. Because it is through that proclamation of the gospel that the Holy Spirit penetrates into our hearts, penetrates into the hearts of the spiritually blind man and makes him see. Makes him see for the first time the light of the world that came to set the captives free. To set them free from their bondage to the domain of darkness and sin and turn from being lovers of the dark to lovers of the light that is Jesus our Messiah. Friends, that's that's divine illumination. That's what that means. It's not some esoteric New Age word. It's It's a biblical concept. Divine illumination. The power of the gospel to open our eyes so that we can see Jesus. And so Jesus is refusing. He's refusing to play the games of these religious leaders. And so he leaves them. In verse 13, we see Jesus entering the boat again and traveling back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, I was telling the guys earlier this morning as we were praying that that I have to admit, as I was reading this passage this week, I came across verses 14 through 21, and I thought the disciples were idiots. I, I can't really say it any more plainly than that. I thought they were morons. And as I was getting comfortable on my high horse... Saddle feeling nice and comfortable. The Lord, in his wisdom and mercy, caused something to happen to me yesterday that was quite humbling. And I fell quite a long way from that high horse. But I'll explain that in just a moment. First, I want to explain why I thought they were idiots, and then I'll explain why I was the idiot. But the first reason I thought the disciples were not the brightest bunch that Jesus could have chosen is because we see in verse 14 that they had forgotten to bring bread with them on their journey back across the lake. I, I honestly find that a bit humorous because lately they have been just swimming in bread. They've been swimming in bread, and the fact that that is the one thing that they forgot to bring with them on their boat trip, I think that's pretty hilarious. I don't know about you guys. And I, of course, have never forgotten anything on a trip. just want to make that clear. Don't ask Kayla. She's downstairs. So. <laughs> All right, yeah. If I don't forget anything, it's because of my wife. But anyway, we'll get to that. But Jesus decides to use this conversation, right, of bread that the disciples are having at this moment to, to teach them. Having just had his run-in with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, verses, or sorry, verse 15 says, And he cautioned them, he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now Matthew 16 also adds the Sadducees to this list as well. And so what is Jesus talking about here? What does he mean, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and Herod? What what, what does this mean? Well, we know leaven, of course, refers to yeast that is added to bread dough to make it rise. And it takes an incredibly small amount of leaven to do that. And so the metaphor suggests that a small amount of a given substance can radically alter anything into which it is mixed. And so in the New Testament, almost every time leaven is mentioned, save two times where, the, where Jesus uses it in a couple parables, but almost every time leaven is met, uh, mentioned, the context is negative. It is seen as an influence that corrupts and destroys Leaven is associated with pride, we see in 1 Corinthians 5.6. Malice and wickedness, we see in 1 Corinthians 5.8. And false teaching on circumcision in Galatians 5.9. And so Jesus is saying, and this is actually helped out by Matthew 16, which gives us a little bit more information, but Jesus is saying, you need to be warned. You need to be warned that you're still going to be surrounded by the Pharisaic religion you're going to be surrounded by the corrupting influence of those who tell you that you must work for your salvation. You're still going to be surrounded by the Sadducean liberalism, by those who will tell you that you can take my word and you can twist it and you can warp it to fit your own desires. You're still going to be surrounded by the influence of this world, by this this fallen culture that is around you. And all of these things have this invisible, permeating, corrupting power. And if you let those things in, even just a small amount will affect your whole being and will try to drag you down to ruin. Now the leaven of Herod may have to do with his desire, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, to see Jesus perform a miracle, as we see in Luke 23. So Jesus may be warning them to not hang their faith on whether or not God performs the miracles that they desire for him to perform. Because, friends, that produces shallow faith. Unbelievably shallow faith. And what's more, it can produce even false faith. A faith that's not real. A faith that's not true. A faith that says to God, I am yours as long as you perform for me. Friends, we are saved by the grace of God alone. And grace means unmerited favor. Unearned favor. We are owed nothing from God. No signs, no miracles, no gift, no nothing. Everything that we have, especially our salvation, is a mercy beyond comparison. And so beware the leaven of Herod. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's a warning for us. Now this brings me to the second reason I thought the disciples were big old dummies. Take a look at verse 16. Verse 16 after they received this warning from Jesus. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Friends, I hope you see what's going on here. They hear Jesus talking about the leaven of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and Herod, and they immediately think Jesus is talking about actual bread. Oh boy. They completely miss that Jesus is trying to teach them. They completely miss it. It's hilarious. They are so concerned about their lack of bread that they do three things here. They do three things here. First is that their current anxiety over their lack of bread causes them to forget everything that they have seen Jesus just do. Right? They have seen him not once but twice multiply loaves of bread to feed thousands and thousands of people. They forgot Jesus' miraculous past provision they forgot it. secondly as i said they miss what jesus is trying to teach them jesus takes their problem this this bad situation that they are in and in his wisdom uses it as an opportunity to teach them something of eternal importance but they allow their current circumstance to blind him to blind them from his words And finally, they simply forget who they have learned Jesus is so far. They have forgotten all that they had seen him do, all the miracles and displays of might and power that they know are only possible by God himself. The Psalms proclaim that the only one who can possibly control the wind and the waves is God. They knew that. They forget Jesus is God. So I said that while I was reading this passage this week, I was, I was pretty hard on the disciples, to say the least. I was, I was baffled that they so quickly forgot everything that Jesus had done. I was, I was baffled that they missed his teaching here, baffled that they seemed to forget who Jesus is, even if they, if they don't fully understand it yet. They still missed it. And then yesterday happened. As Ethan said, a water pipe broke in my house. And my anxiety boiled to the surface. Not not knowing how the problem was going to get fixed. Not knowing the, the extent of the problem. Worrying about the cost of the problem. And in the midst of my high anxiety, I, just like the disciples, had forgotten Jesus. I forgot all the times in my past when it felt like the world was crashing in around me that He was my provision. And that He always provided what I truly needed. Not always what I wanted, but what I needed. Friends, I forgot all of the promises that He has made to me in His Word about Him being enough, even if I have nothing. I've forgotten the promises that say everything that I have right now. Everything. My finances, my house, even my family. Those things are, are nothing compared to the glory that awaits me when I am standing before Him in His presence. One burst pipe, and I forgot it all. But through the grace of our Lord, He opened my eyes to how quickly I can forget yesterday's provision, how quickly I can forget tomorrow's promises in the midst of today's circumstances. And my anxiety over that pipe almost made me miss this wonderful teaching found in His Word. Oh, how like the disciples I am. Now in verse 17, we are told that Jesus is aware of this conversation. And in a series of harsh yet loving and necessary questions, Jesus brings them to an awareness of their own struggle with blindness. He says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, And he said to them, Do you not understand? Now what may seem harsh on the surface, in reality, is loving and merciful. You see, though the disciples, or at least 11 out of the 12 of them, we'll get to that in another sermon, had begun to have their eyes of their hearts opened by Jesus, and now they had more knowledge of who Jesus is than the religious elites and most other people, they still couldn't quite see him clearly. They still couldn't fully grasp and understand who he is and what his signs meant. And they needed his continual instruction to keep widening their eyes to let more of his light in. Interestingly enough, that is exactly what Jesus is doing for them here in the boat. That is why Matthew's account in chapter 16, verse 12, says that that after this hard lesson from Jesus, it says, Then they understood that He did not tell them to beware the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You see, brothers and sisters, even though we are saved, if if you're a believer in this room, Even though Jesus has opened the eyes of our blind hearts, we can still see things dimly. We are still in need of more and more divine illumination. And this is precisely what the miracle Jesus performs directly after this in Bethsaida is all about. It's amazing. I hope you don't don't miss this today, because a lot of people, when they come to this account and they see Jesus spit in this guy's eyes, which is strange, and... He gets his sight recovered, but then he can't quite see all that clearly afterwards. And you're like, oh, I guess Jesus kind of messed up at first, and he just needed to kind of go back and do it again. It's confusing, right? But this is actually a picture. It's supposed to be a picture it's not a mistake that this happened immediately after this confrontation with the Pharisees and this teaching moment on the boat. You see, this miracle recorded in Mark 8, verses 23 to 26, is actually an interpretation. It's a real-life picture of what happened to the disciples in the boat and what happens in our own hearts and minds as we grow in our faith. The wisdom of God is is Unbelievable. Listen to verses 22 through 25. It says, And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man with, or sorry, by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was clear restored and he saw everything what clearly he saw everything clearly you see brothers and sisters the man who jesus healed first sees things in a haze he's not able to make out the objects around him he thinks people walking around just look like blobs these these trees walking around and this is just like the disciples you see the disciples have this base faith in jesus but are still very immature right? Things he said were hazy. They were hard to fully make out. The signs he performed were were hard to completely understand and know what they truly meant. They had this blurry vision of Jesus, even though they could technically see him. But then Jesus goes to the blind man a second time. And when the man opens his eyes again, he sees things clearly. And this is a picture of the disciples after the resurrection of Jesus, when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within them, and they begin to see spiritual truths more and more clearly. The Holy Spirit divinely illuminating their minds and hearts to the deeper truths of Jesus, to what His life, death, and resurrection truly meant. And brothers and sisters, this blind man is a picture of what happens to a believer as he grows in Christ. When we first come to faith in Jesus, all of the theological and biblical truths are there. They're there. We can read them in Scripture, and now we can see them in their general shape, where before we were totally blind to them, but now we can can see them but still not quite make out all of the details. Things are still a bit blurry, a bit fuzzy. We can't quite grasp all the various doctrines found within the pages of the Bible. But as we read our Bibles, and as we spend time in prayer, and as we grow in our relationship with Christ, the Holy Spirit begins to bring things into greater and greater focus. We are moved from from this dim light into greater light. And spiritual truths begin to permeate our hearts more and more as we are given deeper and deeper understanding. That is yet another wonder of the gospel. Jesus came to open the eyes of the spiritually blind so that we can see with increasing clarity the beauty of himself. That is divine illumination. That is what we should all desire. And it, is, it can only come through spending time with our Savior in his word. And through the hearing His Word taught. And through spending time with Him in prayer. That's the only way. You can't can't get it through osmosis. You You can't get it through just following this list of do's and don'ts. If you want to learn more about Jesus, you must do what the disciples did. Spend time with Him. Spend time with Him. Pray to Him. Ask Him like the disciples did. Explain this to me. Lord, there are so many difficult things in, in your word, but I know that it is full of wisdom, and your word is, is the power, to, or has the power to save, has the power to, to grow me in my sanctification, in my Christ likeness. Lord, teach me. Illumine my mind. Open wider the eyes of my heart. Help me see you more and more clearly. How wonderful is it that the gospel offers light? the light of truth, the light of holiness, mercy, and grace. So friends, let's follow Him. Let's spend time with Him. Because if we do, we will never be walking in the dark. Let us pray. Father God, we thank You for opening our eyes to Your truth. Lord, we were blind, God. We not only couldn't see You for who You truly were, Lord, but God, we hated You. Scripture says that that we were enemies of You. We couldn't see Your goodness. We couldn't see Your mercy. And yet, because You set Your affections on us from the foundations of the world, You came in to this dark and blind heart. And You opened our eyes. You gave us the gift of your Holy Spirit. You gave us the gift of salvation. God, we thank you for that. Lord, we love you. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen.